Welcome to Kids Gone Global, a community podcast brought to you by the International School of Hamburg, Germany's pioneer institution in international education. I'm Sarah Reich, your host and the school's director of community relations. In this series, we explore how this international school helps the students hone their skills to become global citizens who can thrive and engage fully in our interconnected and ever-changing world. So what are these 21st century life skills? Together, we will explore the dynamic landscape of education and uncover how schools are adapting to prepare students for a global society. I have the privilege of engaging in conversations with students and experts in the field of international education and childcare. Through these dialogues, we aim to expand our understanding of educational practices in a globalized world. Welcome and enjoy the show. In this episode, we turn to the world of play and play-based learning. What constitutes play in this context and what doesn't? What exactly do children learn through play and how do teachers use play-based learning to support students? Here to discuss these questions with me today is Dr. Susan Weishoff. Susan has a lifelong career in education and has researched and written on play therapy techniques in early childhood settings. Susan is also the Child Safeguarding Officer at the International School of Hamburg and a coach in this field, as well as a learning support teacher. Welcome, Susan. Hi, Samuel. Susan, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to working in this field? Yes, I was born in Iowa in the United States and have lived in Hamburg for the past 29 years, doing a variety of different jobs here at the International School of Hamburg. But I started my career as an early childhood teacher, particularly in the Montessori schools in the United States. And from that, when I moved to Hamburg, I began teaching in the junior school as a classroom teacher. And as my career evolved, I have been very fortunate to serve as a learning support teacher. I was the head of the learning support department. I've been the whole school counselor and the junior school principal for nine years. And now in my current role as a safeguarding officer, it's truly surprising how a lot of the core skills and theories that I learned in my graduate studies how applicable they are to the field of education, childhood development, and to be able to use those skills across a wide range of different types of roles in a school like ours. I was very fortunate to be able to study with Dr. Gary Landreth and Dr. Sue Bratton at the University of North Texas, who are uh, leaders in the field of play therapy and childhood and adolescent therapy. You mentioned how relevant your academic research in child play and adolescent therapy is to your work in the school today. Can you elaborate? Yes, very much. It's Again, it's surprising how in simple day-to-day -day interactions, whether it's with children or parents, member of the administration, teachers, how some of these core ideas about what is important for development and what is important for mental well-being, mental health and being, how applicable they are to the everyday life of a school. Whether it's teaching in a classroom, there are certain elements of play therapy that are very applicable to that, but also just the way that one communicates and listens and tries to understand messages from everyone that you come into contact with during the day. I've been very fortunate to, to be able to use that training in my work here at ISH. What is for you the purpose of play? 
Play is very natural, a very organic experience that every human being engages in, regardless of age, regardless of where you are in the world, regardless of culture. Every human being engages in some type of play in some way. It helps you assimilate your own understanding of the world, particularly young children, in something that's very spontaneous. It's something that is enjoyable, intrinsically enjoyable. It's definitely not goal-directed, so you're not playing to achieve an outcome. You're not playing, engaging in playing to win an award. You're not playing to meet a certain type of goal. It's very self-directed and it engages who you are as a person and your self-concept and how you develop that self-concept. So the purpose of play is really to meet very specific developmental milestones as a child develops, learning how to be enough socially, learning how to be persistent, learning how to solve problems, understanding the things that they enjoy and that they don't enjoy. Play has a purpose for very small children, for young children and adolescents, and also for adults. So you say we all engage in play at all ages, but what is the age group you typically see where play is very important? Very young children, even young infants, engage in some type of play. So a little peekaboo that you do with a very young child who hasn't developed language yet, that's the type of play. And generally, if you look at developmental milestones in children, right up through adolescence, that early childhood stage is so critical because this is the stage at which children are understanding what it means to have, for example, if I'm playing with other children, what is a social boundary? How can I negotiate my play so that it's still enjoyable and it's still fun, but I'm learning those social rules and how to resent others. I'm learning how to be flexible, that maybe I might not be able to, to do the type of play activity that my friends would like to do, but it's a natural, organic way for very young children to learn these developmental skills that are so critical when they become teenagers and, of course, when they become adults. Really, those very young, early childhood years are quite critical. The environment in which our children play is changing very fast nowadays. What would you see as play and not play today? Play has become much more structured. It's very timetabled. It's something that children tend to engage in for reasons other than their own spontaneous fire to engage in something as they enjoy. It tends to be very directed from the parent or sometimes even other adults in their life. They will have very clear structures and routines for what play would be like. For example, children's afternoons tend to be incredibly timetabled. They may have after-school sports and they may learn an instrument and then they may go and do ballet and they might have other types of things that, although well-intentioned, parents may see that as a type of play when really that's not what we think of when we think of truly organic, non-structured, self-directed play. We're finding that play is taking place 
much more indoors. It can be, unfortunately, rather commercialized, particularly the digital play and the rise of on-ring gaming. These are all types of activities that children participate in, but that are very structured and they have lots of rules. And there's really only one way to engage in those types of activities. Those things we would not consider, again, that organic self-directed play. It's quite something that, again, I think it's very well-intentioned that children are exposed to a lot of different types of activities, but activities are play because activities generally have rules and there's an adult present who will correct the child if they're engaging in that activity not according to those rules. So I think if when we talk about true play and valuable play and intrinsically valuable play, we're talking about the type of playing, again, that's very spontaneous, that's directed by the child, that has no rules, and it's not goal-directed. So it's a pleasure within itself. So this explains why this school's after-school care program for children aged 3 to 11 is child-driven. By that I mean the children design what activity they want to spend their afternoon on and how they want to interact with others rather than following a prescribed schedule of activities. Can play as you define it from an educational standpoint be categorized into different types? Very much because, again, play is something that helps children achieve certain types of milestones, and they learn so much during play. But there are different forms and different kinds, and each different career will speak to a particular type of developmental skill that a child will learn. Against relational play, so this is play that has to do with when you see young children, they're playing a family situation, and one, I'm going to be the mom, and you're going to be the baby, and you're going to be the sister. This is a, a social relational type of play where children learn the meaning, social rules, and different types of structures within the social systems that they're able to play out and learn. There's also, there's fun nurturing play. Children can engage in nurturing play where you might see a child with a a, a little stuffed toy or maybe a doll where they're caring for it, they're brushing its hair, they're feeding it. This helps a child, again, assimilate what it means to care for something in the world. There's also rational play. There's also a very physical, active play. And this is a, a type of play that a child might engage in if, they're, if they've got uh, trucks or cars or um, they're crashing things into each other and they're talking about why this one is crashing this one and one is stronger than the other. Again, learning by acting out some of how they're going to assimilate the world around them and their experiences around them. There's fantasy play where children might be acting out different stories that they've heard or different movies that they've seen. There's play for mastery. This is the time of play where a child might set up their toys and they're playing school and they're teaching their little toys, their teaching skills. They want to show that in their world, how does it feel when you're a master? How does it feel when you understand something and you are teaching something to someone else? There's many more different types of play, but those are just a few examples. 
You've hinted at a number of skills children can learn through these different categories of play. Can you give us an example? Sure. If a child is, if there's a favorite toy in the classroom that every child wants to play with or a favorite toy at home, and again, when I say toy, I mean something that's not digital, not a get, not a board game, not anything that has rules, but just a particular toy that a child can play with in a lot of different ways. If there's a favorite toy, maybe amongst siblings or amongst children in a classroom, and they need to understand that only one, perhaps only one person can play with that toy at a time, they need to learn, and through their play, they're going to learn at what point have I reached a social boundary where I'm imposing my play ideas on my play partner, and then my play partner's going to leave, and I won't get to play. They learn so that idea of social limits. They learn flexibility. So if I want to play this toy in a particular way, but someone else is waiting to play for this toy, maybe I have to wait a little bit and, and defer my enjoyment so that this child can play, and then it's my turn again. So they learn flexibility. They learn self-control. They learn that maybe if this toy isn't doing what I were to do, I can use another toy in combination, and they learn some problem solving. They learn some ideas about how they can use toys in different ways. So it's a little trial and error. It's a little experimentation. They also learn responsibility. So they have to, through their play, they're going to understand and learn that if I play with a particular toy in a particular way and I've broken it, next time... I'm going to make sure that I'm playing with that toy in a responsible way. So if it upsets me and I stop doing what I want it to do and I throw it and then it's broken, I can't play with it. Children learn again. There's so many skills that are tied up. It's such a rich experience for children. And most of the skills that they're learning are internal. There's usually not an adult standing next to them and teaching them these very specific things. They're all very internal skills that they learn. So basically, unstructured play is a major vector in developing social skills, negotiation skills, and problem solving. Do you see this as having an impact on the child's development in later years? Very much. I think as a child grows and develops, the skills in which they learn, again, internally through play, are things that If they haven't learned it in an early age, it's much more difficult as they grow older because they have developed some internal patterns of behavior that are then very, can be very difficult to unteach as they get older. So just a a very quick example, during the lockdown, during COVID, a lot of the young children, school-aged children, were denied a lot of opportunity to learn some of these social rhetoric, negotiation, flexibility, self-control, brain gratification. They lost a lot of opportunities to learn that because this is something that you learn through natural play with others. Because they weren't in school and because basically these things were happening in the family, which a family dynamic is very different than a school dynamic, they missed out on the opportunity to learn some of those skills and what we're finding now and some of the research is finding now is that 
children who missed that during the COVID lockdown, now they're in middle school or adolescence. And we're finding that some of their social developmental skills are lower than what we would expect under normal circumstances. So again, getting back to one of the earlier questions, that early childhood age to learn these types of skills, it's really critical that they're allowed the opportunity to have this non-structured, non-timetabled play so that they can, again, learn these skills internally. Susan, based on these observations, how does the international school approach these different types of play? And is it something that's integrated into the program? Over the past few years, uh, particularly in our early years program here at NSH, uh, we've been very aware of the importance of ensuring that children have this opportunity for unstructured, non-directed play. One of the things that we've done is that we've extended the period of time that children play outdoors. We have allowed children, particularly in the afternoons, a much more extended period of time where they can play out a lot of these scenarios that I've described and bring them to some type of conclusion. We know that research tells us that outdoor play is really important. In fact, there was a recent study in Scandinavia where they looked at the language development of children who played outdoors and the language development of children who played indoors. And what they found is that the children who had outdoor play experiences, their level of language and their sentence structure was much more complex and, and at a higher level than those children who just had play experience indoors. At ISH, we've extended the outdoor playing time for children. And in our early years, we've also created a, a guiding statement that's very clear about the fact that we use play-based learning in the early childhood. So what that means is we, in the classrooms, we provide a multitude of play materials that don't necessarily have rules about how to play with them. So lots of art materials, lots of what we call loose parts. So lots of different types of things like bottle caps or things that you would normally maybe toss out. We upcycle those and use those as play materials. And then children can naturally engage with these materials in so many different ways. And it communicates to the teacher what the child knows, what the child understands, opposed to some of the more traditional academic tasks where children are sitting at tables and they're doing paper parcel activities. This type of play-based learning allows teachers to meet the child where they're at developmentally. So an example, you can, you can put out a lot of different shapes and a child uh, may just be playing with them naturally and build a house. And so then the teacher's role is that they just gently begin to question the child about what they're building. I noticed that you built something here. Tell me about what you built. And the teacher is listening for whether or not the child has a vocabulary. So do they understand square, triangle, circle, rectangle? They can bring in math and counting how many corners are touching in this house. If you built five houses just like this, how many corners would be touching? So it's 
the teacher is following the child instead of the child following the teacher. And it's such a rich way for educators, particularly early childhood educators, to understand the understandings that the child already has and then bring that child. Yes, on that point, I was going to ask, as an international school, we have students coming in from diverse cultural and educational backgrounds and at different development stages. How does this play-based learning approach help teachers in meeting the individual needs of our students? I think that the beauty of this non-structured self-directed play is that it allows a child to communicate with their teacher and it's not necessarily based on their ability to express themselves in language. So even just a teacher observing a child building with different shapes, a teacher can immediately observe if they understand concepts like symmetry, they understand concepts as counting, they understand just a multitude of different types of skills. And then the teacher's role, again, is just very gently it can be even done non-verbally, just by showing fingers or showing pointing and counting that the child can demonstrate to the teacher what their understanding is of their world, also socially, because in our early childhood and early junior school classrooms, we have a lot of role play where children can interact with things in their world and their real world. So we have keyboards, we have cellular phones, we have kitchens and dishes and all the different kinds of things that children encounter in their real world, wherever they have come from, wherever they live. And through the ways that they play with those materials, they are communicating a multitude of things to their teachers. The teacher's role then is very different. The teacher is not having a child sit down and color in we're learning five today, so you're going to color in five squares. A teacher can automatically see through the children's play if they have five chairs at the little kitchen table or in the play area of the classroom. Can a child put five dishes out for each chair? They understand that concept. For teachers, it's just a, it's a rich window into a child's experience, what they have learned, what their experiences are at home, what their experiences are with other people and how they interact with other people. So it really allows the teacher to address that wide spectrum of development and not expect every child to be at the same place on the same day for the same lesson. So play is a universal language like maths and music. So again, it's across all cultures, it's across all ages. And I've seen this so many times in my professional lives where we have a child, two children who do not speak the same language and come from completely different cultural experiences, but you place them in a rich environment with lots of different toys that are very flexible, that don't have a lot of rules. They can communicate with each other and understand through play what they like, what their concept of themselves are, how they understand the world to work, and it's just a wonderful medium and, yeah, a really, truly universal language. Children today seem to spend less time playing outdoors and more time online or in set activities. Do you think that play is in decline for our children's generation compared to ours or earlier ones? I think this idea of non-structured child-led play is not as 
taken for granted as it used to be. I think children and I think parents in particular have a sense that they need to be present and sometimes even direct their children's play. Again, I'm speaking from a a culturally Western perspective, but I think parents do tend to feel a very high obligation to ensure that their child has a broad, wide range of experiences. What that turns into is they have a lot of scheduled play dates, they have a lot of scheduled lessons, they have to learn a sport, they have to learn a musical instrument. Children are very busy today. And you add into that mix digital devices, and you have very little time left, I could say it very simply, to be bored. Children, if they have access to things that will meet their needs, they will find a way to be creative with that. And I think because now we have we have much many more digital devices, we have much more structured turret. I do think that the idea of allow the children to do what their inner self-concept says they should do with their play, that can maybe be a little scary for parents. And I think, again, parents feel this obligation to ensure their children are getting everything what they need. And what parents may not understand is that by being directives with their children, and timetabling their time and interjecting themselves into their children's play, they're taking away those opportunities for that inner development that a child can really, truly only internally experience themselves when they're the ones in the driver's seat, when the child is the one making the decisions. So again, although it's well-intentioned, I do think that non-structured, child-directed play is somewhat in decline today. So boredom makes us creative. In today's society, we can no longer take play and all its benefits for granted. Based on these findings, do you see school systems adapting around the world to counter this trend and better embrace the benefits of play as you describe them? I think there's reason to be optimistic about that. And again, speaking from a Western academic school system, education tends to be delivered through a direct teacher instruction and evaluation of the student. It's it's very skill-based and it's a very linear process. For example, every child has a very clearly defined set of academic skills that they have to master. And that's a given, I think, across schools. But I think one of the reasons why I'm optimistic is that there are there's continuing research and education tends to swing like a pendulum. There are ideas that were very popular back in the 60s and 70s and school philosophy swings completely in the other direction. I see a shift back, which is encouraging to things like collaborative learning, where a teacher will set up the learning experience and children master the content of the curriculum through cooperation. That's the only way that that they're able to complete their learning tasks. This idea of learner agency is something that's uh, very popular right now in the field of education. And it's the idea that children have choice. 
Children have choice in how they approach a learning test. Children should have choice in a way that, in, in how they demonstrate their learning and what they've learned. So it's not necessarily a then at your desk with a paper and pencil and finish the test, but they can show their learning in other ways. That's a really exciting trend right now, learner agency. And curricular models that are currently used in practice in many international schools um, are all curricular methods that are based on the inquiry method. So it's the child taking the lead in their learning. It's the child using the resources that the teacher provides to come to a conclusion as opposed to a teacher teaching content top down. This is what you need to know and learn. The children are discovering that for themselves. And that's a really exciting trend in today's educational classroom. You mentioned parents and how important it is for us adults to hang back and let children find their own ways to play. What can parents do instead to support learner agency? I think the most important thing that parents can do is give their children time and space. And to be able to sit with a little bit of uncomfortableness that might give to parents, because again, parents have this very high sense of obligation to to ensure that their children has as many experiences as possible. But I think allowing children to have time where they get to make the choice about how they're using their time. So parents can provide the space. They can provide the time. That's not the same thing as providing particular types of toys or digital devices or games or things that may, for the parent, theme to be play-based, building a Lego set. My child is playing with Legos, but if they're following a pattern where the Lego has to be built in a certain way, that's something very different. So it's providing very open-ended materials. If you just have a box of Legos, a child can build whatever they like. If you have a box full of crafting items, a child can use those to create anything they like. It's about allowing the child to make their own decisions about what type of play is going to best meet their developmental need at that time. So the best thing that parents can do, give your child time, give your child the space. And that means not interjecting yourselves into their play. It can be very well-meaning. Oh, let me help you with that. Let me show you how this works. Um, but sit back. And what the parent can't do is reflect and be a mirror for their own child's process. So things like, I notice really enjoy that particular color. Oh boy, I wonder if you're creating something to give as a gift for your friend. I, I wonder if you're going to decide to do something different with that because it looks like it's not doing what you want it to do. Oh, you really enjoy when that thing happened. So you're reflecting to the child the, the results of their own choices, really, so that they can then for themselves make the decision about where they take their playing at. In a nutshell, give your child turn, give your child space, and be a mirror to reflect your child's process. Thank you very much, Susan. It was wonderful to explore the world of play-based learning with you today. Thank you for the opportunity. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Kids Gone Global. 
brought to you by the International School of Hamburg. There is a reading list available for this episode and others of this series on our website. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.